A meter from him, a football-sized spider with wildly waving legs was trying to force itself into a crack which had suddenly appeared in the bulkhead. The thing's jointless legs seemed to be swatting at the paper and other detritus, whirling around it. The spider rotated and Cassard realised that it was the head of the medic. She had been decapitated in the initial explosion. Alright, welcome to Wheel of Genre. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm Joe. And this week we are reading, well, we're still reading Hyperion. We are Hyperion. on... Chapter two, story number two of Hyperion. Yeah. This one is The Soldier's Tale. Guys, catch us up real quick. What what has happened so far in this? So I believe as The Soldier's Tale begins, we're on the barge now. We've landed on Hyperion and now uh, we're on a, a barge essentially going down the river, I believe, to towards the time tunes, towards where the Shrike pilgrims that we are with on their pilgrimage to see the time tunes and maybe even see the Shrike. They're all telling the stories, and we've just la- recently heard the first story, which was the tale of called the priest's tale. We we sort of hear about the Shrike, which is on Hyperion, and we, we learn a little bit about what it's like. We still really don't have much information about what, like why they are on this final Shrike pilgrimage, why it's the final Shrike pilgrimage, and you know what really the, the backstory of all these characters is. So we're about to hear the tales of all the other characters, and in this one we're hearing about the the soldier's tale. Colonel Fedman Kassad is ready to tell his tale. So that's where we're up to. And, you know, I guess now we can talk about like, what his tale involves and, you know, maybe what, how that, what that adds to our knowledge of the story so far. Sure. We still got a story shrouded in mystery, but I feel like we're getting puzzle pieces added in as we go. Yeah. yeah. Now, I mean, we've talked about these stories being like different genres. Mm-hmm. So the first story, the priest tale, we, we kind of ultimately came to it being something like a, a Lovecraftian horror tale, mm-hmm. essentially, in form with elements of like a sort of, H. Ryder Haggard sort of story, but even then, I think Lovecraft, Lovecraft was already sort of incorporating that into his style. So it's very much like a Lovecraft type tale. What genre do you put Soldier's Tale in? I've got an idea of what I would put it in, but what would you guys say? It's got elements of erotica and I think a war novel is what I yeah. would say. Nice blend of both. I think that, so I think it's interesting how the, the title of this chapter is The War Lovers, and it's not The Lovers yeah. of War. It's the war lovers, which kind of leaves an ambiguity in, in reading on whether they're the lovers who are, you know, within a war or if they are the lovers of war. It, it leaves both open. And I think the story itself doesn't really pin down any one meaning. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for me, it almost had a sort of uh, with the, the lover, especially in the question of like, is it a real lover? Is it not a real lover? It had the feeling and, you know, being in a simulation for war simulations and stuff, it had a feeling of like a very much like a Philip K. Dick type story to me, this one. Uh, definitely mm. the elements of the war. But, you know, that the sort of, I don't know, is she real? Is she not lover? Very much so recalls like aspects of Blade Runner to me. And I think the the war simulation and the Battle of Agincourt, which is where we start the story, is, is very like Philip K. Dick as well. So I think that's sort of what I was getting from this story a little bit in terms of like, you know, influences um, yeah. well i think that's a good place to start the battle of agincourt because what we get right here is a kind of character introduction to fedman Kassad, who i will just broad in broad strokes characterize as a super soldier if you have seen so not next file super soldier a Arnold schwarzenegger super soldier in the sense of he's he's just mean he's lean he's badass and he just kills everyone in sight you know but what, what's cool about him is that we, we get a glimpse into his training 
and his training involves these simulations. Basically, they're plugging these soldiers into the Matrix so that they believe they're in other time periods. And it's not just a kind of like no stakes simulation. Kassad mentions that he's heard of people who die in the simulation. And, you know, when they when they jack them out, they're dead as well. Mm-hmm. So you get you get this picture of this person who's kind of learning to use weapons of all time periods, engaging in strategies that are relevant, perhaps only in certain contexts. But you have to imagine that that's probably the best way to be a soldier if you're going to be a soldier. Learn specific lessons and specific battles. I like the way they described the AI too. It's a special AI that dreams and the people inside of it dream with it. It says that the HTN stuff, it doesn't simulate, it dreams. It dreams with the best historical accuracy of the web, way beyond the sum of its parts because it plugs in holistic insight as well as facts. And when it dreams, it lets us dream with it. And that's the mm. whole quote there. And he says then afterwards, Kassad had understood, but he, uh, he had not understood, but he had believed. And then she came again. Yeah, it's very interesting in that regard. It's like, how, to what extent is any of this real? It feels so real, but you, know, you always believe in it, but it's, it's, you're not sure what is real. It's kind of like a... Uh large-scale version of, like, chat GPT hallucinating. Like, you know, uh, I guess it does this less often now, but when you ask it a question and it will just kind of tell you a story that's just pure bullshit, you know? Like, you ask it a very specific, clear, fact-based question and it will just tell you something that is just made up off the top of its head. That, but, you know, imagine times a billion computing power and people are actually within that dream. Yeah. And now something is breaking within the dream. I thought was very that, that's where the erotica comes in we have a battle at Agincourt and this is where it's very similar to Canterbury Tales there's lots of arrows flying lots of horses jumping over spikes but then Bedwin Kassad goes into the woods has a one-on-one battle someone comes in saves him Kassad's about to go down about to die and maybe die in real life inside of the simulation and then turns into the person who saves him is a woman and they have a incredible sex scene and then it just becomes erotic episode in battle after battle after battle so something strange is happening in this simulation because no one else is experiencing anything like this yeah he can't seem to find this person in real life but apparently she claims that she does exist in real life at the yeah beginning. there is a there so there's does she or does she not kind of element because he does in, say that the the dreams are populated by these kind of npc characters right Mm -hmm. that feel real but actually don't have a human that are not actually avatars to real human people behind them so i think that when he only sees her in these dream in these simulations these dreams but never in real life it does raise the question of who is this person is she actually real or not and and he he does say that he has never told anyone about her because he's worried about how that will look on the psych evaluations. And I think there's also maybe a deeper element to that in a way, I think, where if he tells people about her, then, you know, she, they start maybe questioning his story and she, it becomes less easy for him to believe in her reality. He seems to have this deep need to believe in her reality, aside yeah. from the fact of whether she actually does exist or not, because, you know, she's unlike anything else that he's ever experienced. You know, talks about being a young man, thinking he's seen it all, and then, you know, he slept with her, and things were never the same again for him. So it's a little bit of a strange story there as well for him, I think. Yeah. A love story, but it's hard to tell whether it's like a two-sided love story. So the story covers a lot of ground, right? So we we begin in that initial training sequence, that moment of questioning confusion, but then we get kind of like a bullet point spark note summary of Fedman Kassad's career. We get a... And this is all uh, after the woman, isn't it? After the woman, yeah. She, she so suddenly we, disappears. Like he sees her a few times and then she doesn't see her for 
Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And then so, we so we get this kind of like case file of just how yeah. badass Kassad is. So we have a Islamic planet, which is having some kind of like internal struggle and strife. Sunni, the new Shia, prophet, new prophet. So you have mm. it says you have all of these mullahs who have taken over and have a hostage situation that involves like 20,000 people. And what does Fedman do? Well, he trains, he detonates satellites in the sky, but but trains x-rays from that explosion to be essentially just sniper bullets that instantly microwave the brains of all of the 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 people on the planet that are in, involved in the hostage situation then you get himself getting blown up resuscitated brought back to life in a horrible state barely able to move when his ship is attacked by ousters these are the people who we've heard of you know since the beginning of this book then you get kind of like a mass killing sequence set in space where he goes through, kills a bunch of them, and takes a ship down to the planet Hyperion. And then, of course, we see we meet the woman again. Or he meets the woman again, more accurately. We've been waiting for this, too. It's set up that every time they meet, it has to be a battle. It's always bloody. Something terrible is going yeah. on. People are dying all around them. They have sex next to a corpse the first time of the man they just killed. And mm-hmm. now we've been waiting for it, and we have this long sequence in that ship where it's just Fedman killing person after person after person. Hey. Now he's going to be united with the love of his life. But in this erotic scene, something very disturbing and I did not expect happened. Well, I think I think before we go into that, I feel like I don't know. I feel like I should spend a little bit more time talking about the sort of the battle itself in which they meet. Mm. You know, which is because in and of itself, like you say, like I think there is in this in this story, but also in this book in general, I think a really interesting like idea of almost like the closeness of somehow pretty like destruction and creation or you know the the productivity almost or the the inspiring sort of generative nature of violence and fear and death you know he always seems to meet this woman and you know ultimately do the sort of generous expropriated act with her at sort of after the most violent act of the war and obviously you know it's called the war lovers I think we'll see something else in the the next story about that. And I think, you know, the way the strike is described in the priest tale is this idea that somehow the fear inspired and the awe and the fear inspired by this terrible creature, the shrike, is almost like the most alive you will ever feel. So I think that's kind of interesting that she does arrive in that way. And it's such a big scene when he is taking out the Alpsters, who are essentially what these people who have like evolved essentially over millennia you know however many centuries or millennia i can't remember exactly the time frame to a much lower level of gravity than we ourselves do so they're very tall very long they've got very long limbs but they don't seem particularly good at fighting but he he single-handedly in you know very unhealthy state just dismantles entire ships worth of these ousters and then she ultimately helps him she comes out of nowhere to sort of help him win this this battle and then they crash land on Hyperion. And that's kind of how we come to this meeting up with her. I don't think that's accidental. The Butcher of Brescia. Yeah. He, he, butcher uh, of Brescia. He does the Butcher of Brescia thing. What is going on here? How do they win that battle? It is very Dune-like what's going on. Yeah. You have someone who's able to move at a different speed through time than others. I'm not exactly sure how they get this sudden skill. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really sure, at least, mm. well, I think someone is sure, but well, so just to like zoom out a bit, the way this book is working is 
all of them, all of our characters are sharing their stories so that they learn what they're getting themselves into as they travel to the time tunes to ask something of the Shrike or to do something with the Shrike. So here, what we find is he puts on these kind of like liquid metal suits and they're able to control time to dip in and out of the normal flow of time. And in this way, they're able to kill people essentially in slow motion or in fast motion. How They're in slow motion and Kassad and Moneta are in fast motion. Mm-hmm. What we then learn is that Moneta's technology appears to be in some way intrinsically linked with the Shrike. Yeah. How do we find this out? This is the big reveal that we were talking about. They're making love and then her eyes start glowing red. And anyone who's been a careful reader of this story knows that the only thing whose eyes glow red are the, sh- the shrikes. I think I think it said with ten thousand facets. It's ten thousand faceted red glowing eyes. And I then, love the way each story describes yes. it slightly differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the laser beams behind red rubies full of blood. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And she essentially starts as he works out becoming the shrike mid the shrike mid coitus, mm. and it's quite. A, Fierce and terrifying scene talks about how the, the teeth of her vagina shut just as he's just as he managed to get himself free. I know, and yeah. Then, uh, you, uh, looked over uh, and she went back to normal again. Um, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't have gone vaginal dentata yeah. for, for yeah. a fear of Full this dentata. story. But you know, I guess this is what Dan Simmons ready to roll with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, indeed. And yeah, I agree with Bob. It is very Dune-like. It's very Bashar. Yeah, um, yeah. Miles Tag. Miles Tag. Yeah, oh. Bashar Miles Tag. With with his essentially, you know, everyone else moving in slow motion while he seems to be normal, and whatever he, he and Manetta or Nemesine, I believe, mm. you know, her name means memory in in the Greek. I assume Manetta means the same thing in some other language, but it means a warning in Latin. He, he says like the, as they are to these ousters who are moving in slow motion, so they're just you know chopping them up left, right, and center. So is the shrike to them. So what, you know, there, even their power there, the way it's described, is merely a shadow of the Shrike's real capabilities. I think that's, you know, part of the Shrike of it just is so ineffable, so unbound by any laws of physics. It's not even just that you've slowed time down, the Shrike slowed time down for everyone else. It's like he's just bypassed time altogether, so exists completely outside of it. The time, I like how the time tombs move back in time very slowly, and the Shrike seems to be totally unbound from time, just able to pop in and out whenever he wants to kill someone. Yeah, well, what's going on here with the time tombs? I feel like I'm still struggling to wrap my head around it. I mean, there's this anti-entropic field going around, Mm. which essentially moves backwards in time in order to protect the time tombs. And the Shrike is somehow very closely linked to the time tombs and seems to live almost like within them, even though they're completely empty. I don't know. Like, what what do we conc- do? We learn anything conclusive about the time tombs in this story? I d- I don't think we learned anything new about the time tombs here. I think it's still a mystery. I think that the the main data dump we get from this story is the idea that the way the Shrike suddenly appears places or appears to just transport from one location to another location as it kills people is because it appears to be unbound from time. Yeah. So I guess the mystery of the time tombs remains to a degree. like what were you about to say earlier so here's here's something i'm thinking about because you guys i did not make the connection to uh, what is that dune five 
Miles. Yeah, that'll be heretics. Yeah, yeah, heretics, heretics of Dune. Yeah, because he gets Miles- like, and that also happens in a moment of extreme pain and distress. Yeah. Right, like he's been captured by some of the scattering, and he it's like a tea probe or something. He's getting tortured yeah, so essentially, and he experiences such the ex- extreme pain that he yeah. has the same almost. Uh, I don't know, like breakthrough or revelation or just sudden upgrading abilities that the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mothers only get through enormous, impossibly enormous amounts of spice for any other uh, group of people. And he gets that just through sheer pain. And through this, he gets this extra ability where he somehow moves slower in time, but he eats like an absolute hound, like he has to eat constantly because he's used so much energy. And it, yeah, it is very, very similar here with what's happened with Tech. And again, it's linked to that sort of experience of extreme agony and and, and fear where he's almost had an out of body experience because the t-probe is also sexual yeah these kinds of extreme emotional states physical and emotional well yeah. i'm interested in how dan simmons himself talks about this as kind of like a retelling of the canterbury tales hmm. or like a reformulation of the canterbury tales the way the canterbury tales works is you have all these stories that pre-exist chaucer chaucer didn't write these stories but chaucer's folding them in and retelling them in his own words I'm starting to get this idea that the way Dan Simmons works, his creative process kind of works with this, is kind of folding in all of these tales from science fiction into this one universe, into this one story, and telling it from multiple perspectives. Because you wouldn't say that Dan Simmons invented military fiction. You wouldn't say that, I'm sure that a time unbound soldier didn't start with Frank Herbert. But you get the idea that these are kind of tropes or ideas or things that have been explored before that are kind of echoing throughout Dan Simmons' work. I mean, Bob, you, you're the you're the expert. I, I always go to you for this term. What's the term that you get in the Iliad when the soldier just goes on a on a rampage, ostensibly well, backed by a god, but just you know they have a one man, they one man just runs through an entire you know battalion of soldiers. There's a term for it. What what is that term? I always forget it. There's a famous scene with Diomedes. Diomedes is suddenly blessed by the gods to have godlike power, and that's called his Aristeia. Aristeia, kind of yeah. shining and able to become a juggernaut yeah and it's always as if they've just suddenly entered a different like metaphysical level than the so, other people around they're just slashing people up they're just absolutely destroying everyone as if everyone else is moving in slow motion and they're you know still moving in the real speed so you know i agree it's, it doesn't seem to be that herbert's in you know invented this idea but but it's like an echo it's a way of participating with with that tradition <laughs> with that idea yeah he also i mean so this isn't the only tale he does this. Like the priest tale also involves ideas that we've kind of seen before. We've already talked about it being somewhat Lovecraftian, though I, I personally couldn't pinpoint a specific Lovecraft story. But the ideas are kind of like yeah, we said like uh, mountains of madness. I think mountains of madness, sure, or like a body snatcher type thing where mm-hmm. you know parasite kind of takes over people and fundamentally changes them or degrades them. So like. You have a kind of like framework story here in which Dan Simmons can kind of place all of these ideas in their proper form to tell his own story and give his own spin on them. Going all the way back to Homer, which is interesting because Dan Simmons does have a series called Ilium and Olympos, which are science fiction retellings of Homer's tales, which I think we should absolutely read at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And this becomes like very much like a major thing, like to, to, you know, quickly like, flip toward the next tale this idea of going all the way back to ancient greece and the moment i say that again i remember frank herbert and doing the idea that the atreides lineage goes all the way back to agamemnon uh, i think this seems to be somehow like a sci-fi trope almost this idea of like going back to the classical world 
I don't know if that's just because there's a sort of, a, to some degree, coincidental, some degree, maybe not coincidental, like overlap of sci-fi fans and like people interested in the ancient world or not. I'm not sure. But yeah, it definitely seems to be a particular thing for Dan Simmons of going back to, you know, the great texts and the, the great poems of, you know, the Iliad, but also like Beowulf and, you know, Canterbury Tales, these great epics from really ancient, like classic literature, classical literature, should I say. Um, seems to be a massive trope of his. And the idea of telegraphing right back into the past, but also right into, right into the future, I think this idea of a massive sweep of time that we're somehow involved with, but ultimately dwarfed by, I think that seems to be a big part of like the sci-fi MO almost, of making us realize our own smallness, in a sense. It, most stories exist within such a small bubble in which, you know, this one moment of our time is, is absolutely everything. But sky, uh, sci-fi very much like... T- telescopes out and allows us to see ourselves in a much like larger context that seems like a big part of its basic function as a genre to push the limits i guess Mm. of what we can comprehend so does this tale push the limits of our comprehension of war in any way i mean i do think it's good that we maybe swing this back away from the science fiction into what this really engages with which is military fiction like this is we talked about this as a you know, kind of erotic tale, but this is fundamentally at heart, in my opinion, a military fiction story. Does it make yeah. us think of war in a different way? Well, it's interesting that, you know, <clears throat> we have these simulations, obviously a very futuristic technology, increasingly less so, you might argue, with VR and so forth, but ostent- it's not real, and yet it feels very, very real. So, you know, there's had to have the simulation, which I think is a big, you know, thing for sci-fi writers. I know you were just sense the link in the chat uh, about Philip K. Dick's own sort of occupation with the simulation. And I do think this story has a very Philip K. Dick vibe pretty much for that reason. You know, but then it, there's a point in, at which he's fighting with this guy just before he first meets this woman. And he realizes, oh, actually, I've never really properly trained to fight without hollow hologramic whips and all the other sort of technologies that they use. I can't remember them off the top of my head. And now he's actually in hand-to-hand combat and he's forced to defend himself. So, you know, I think that's one thing it maybe says about war across time of it being sort of wise maybe to keep training with hand-to-hand combat. The idea that all war, no matter how futuristic, will at times come down to one-to-one hand-to-hand combat. That that seems to me quite an interesting statement about war in, in the nuclear age, as it were. Well, it, it does come down to hand-to-hand combat, but you also do get the example of him doing satellite x-ray strikes to microwave people's brains so there is it's kind of showing all angles of it in in i guess for kassad strategy over strength yes or at least strategy coupled with strength seems to be the way it characterizes him yes certainly though what i do like about this is that it's not necessarily 100 percent kassad the superman we do get these Moments of fear and uncertainty. I'll read a quote. A cavalry charge was something beyond Kassad's experience. Watching 1,200 armored horses charging directly at him created internal sensations which Kassad found a bit unnerving. The charge took less than 40 seconds, but Kassad discovered that this was ample time for his mouth to go absolutely dry, his breathing to begin to have problems, and for his testicles to retreat completely into his body. We, we get this kind of like recurring thing throughout the story, actually, of anytime Kassad feels a little bit scared, his testicles, his, his testicles <laughs> retreat up into his body. Yep. And I think that's a good, I think that's a humbling character note. Neat parlor trick. <laughs> it's a neat parlor trick. It's a humbling character note. 
to me, it's a reminder that military fiction is only good if you're dealing with a protagonist who can die, who feels scared, mm. who feels like there's something on the line regarding their personal safety. Like, it's a bit boring to read. I mean, Superman is kind of held up as a classic example of like Superman can't lose. So there's no there's no stakes. Yeah. You, know, you don't feel anything reading Superman. And of course, it's one of those where like you don't obviously you know that he's telling this tale hmm. and therefore didn't doesn't die. So there's an element in which we know he's not going to die. And yet, I don't know, in the moment, it, it very much still feels like he, he could. I don't know, maybe, does it feel like he could die, or do we, are we just in that illusion of, like, he's the perfect hero who can't possibly die, because we know he doesn't, you know, first and foremost, but I think it almost doesn't matter in those moments, like, just like how he knows he's in a simulation with the Battle of Agricult, yeah, he's, his ball's still, you know, retreating to his body, he still feels like he could well die, mm-hmm. and there are reports of people who have died in the simulation, so, yeah, I think he is very much like a classic war hero in that sense, and he's, he's very much like a, the ultimate alpha, you know, Giga Chad soldier. And yet, mm. you know, there are these moments of vulnerability, uh, you know, that that are very obvious and where he's very aware of his mortality and also where he's very sensitive and, in you know, ultimately in love with this woman, he doesn't even know if she's real or not. So I think it's a very interesting, that well-rounded picture of this soldier. There's one little other scene in there. It's right after what Zach was reading that I like, too, that shows us the changing of values, especially in military culture. The, the main objective of that Agincourt battle was to learn that you don't honor and you don't, like, valor is dead, basically, because they're in the fight. He's down there grappling with all of these other soldiers and then this very tall knight and says, please, allow me to have hand-to-hand combat, an honorable fight. Then Kassad just takes his bow and arrow and shoots the guy right in the eye while he's dueling with someone else. And that was one of the lessons was you don't honor some of these old ways and the point is supposed to show we have to use different strategies that aren't old, honorable ways. Well, these old, honorable ways are very interesting. So Kassad mm. uh, is uh, like a member of this this uh, group, which is also a sort of, a, I wouldn't say an ideology, but a kind of a credo, mm. uh, the new Bushido, right. kind of like the, the uh, samurai warriors. He considers himself in some, a member of the new Bushido. And then when he is f- having this fight that we mentioned where he is almost defying physics, he's beating time, fighting along with Monita and also somehow also the Shrike uh, to defeat all of the ousters on Hyperion, he talks about it being not fair. Because I'd realize it's not fair what they were doing to these soldiers. He said it was wrong. It was the ultimate violation of the new Bushido, worse in its way than the wanton murder of civilians. The essence of honor lay in the moment of combat between equals. And he was about to, you know, he's... He's about to communicate this, but then that's when the Shrike turns up and he realizes, I think, that all previous notions of what is right and what is wrong and how the world works are just absolutely obliterated in the, in this moment. Well, it's interesting that he's using like Shrike or Shrike-ish technology and comes to the conclusion that it's a dishonorable form of killing Yeah, while using it and then meets the Shrike. It really sets up... Yeah the shrike as a as like the most dishonorable like the the antithesis of his new bushido code yeah it makes it seem silly doesn't it of like talking about competition among equals and then seeing something that's so far beyond your wildest conceptions it just makes it seem silly almost to talk about competition between equals when you see that well there's a difference between like when you talk about so far beyond like i could i could enter a swimming competition with Michael Phelps and Michael Phelps is so far beyond my abilities that, you know, Michael Phelps would win. And I would say, 
congrats, Michael Phillips, you earned it. But if I was to engage with a swimming contest against a shark and the shark bit my legs off and then swam to the finish line, it's not an honorable win. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pat the shark on the shark on the back for impeding me from ever possibly even competing in the first place. So the, when you talk about so far beyond, really the strike falls into the ladder. Shrike falls mm-hmm. into something that's dishonorable. That's not competing yeah. to win, but rather impeding to win. Yeah. It's the ultimate thing that does not play by the rules. Yeah. Right. Not even the most elementary rules of physics. It just does not play by the rules. So in a way, it is completely and utterly, utterly dishonorable. And the whole point about the new Bushido is that it's competition among equals, that it's going back to this idea of like a smaller scale war of like hand-to-hand combat as opposed, you know, in reaction to the sort of interplanetary, you know, very technologically advanced combat. And yeah, the Shrike is the exact antithesis of this, as you say. Fedman describes himself, he's able to move so fast or so slow, slow down time so much that when a missile passes by him, he says, I could have written my name on it. That's how much he can control time. But then he says, but that was nothing compared to the Shrike, who seemed just to not move or at a different speed just to be there and not there. Similar to the last story, but to able mm. to completely the same phrase, physics. right? The idea same, of yeah. one moment he was there, next moment he was here, or next mo- one moment he was here, next moment he was there, right? Or not even the next yeah. moment he was, he seemed to go from being there to here. But yeah, like, yeah. This is outside of the rules, completely outside of anything that we can explain. Guys, tell me about this tree of thorns. I can't believe we didn't talk about that during the episode. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm actually struggling to remember. How, how is it exactly that the, the tree of, th- at, what, at what precise moment is it that the tree of thorns uh, emerges? So I think oh. they've defeated the ousters at this point, right? The battle's still going on. I think they're walking into the battle at this point because she, she shows them the time tombs. He says, aren't they surrounded by an anti-entropic field? She says, no, well, they're actually moving back in time. Then they're looking at all of this dust. And this is where I feel like it's very Lovecraftian, Mountains of Madness, where you believe Everest is the tallest thing in the world. And then you see behind yeah. there's something much worse. So the dust Something we can parts, only have a glimpse by implication, by, it, ne- by negative inference rather than well, direct dir- sight. Directly. Like beyond comprehension, beyond what we can perceive. But he yeah. gets to see it for just a glimpse. The, the dust parts for a second and he sees this tree that's over 300 meters tall. It's taller than the cliff. It's taller than anything. And he sees the bodies on it, all of the people, all of the aliens, all these people writhing on this giant tree of thorns. And then it closes up again with dust and vanishes. You guys have seen the Shrike bird, right? What what the Shrike is based off of? So the Shrike is a the Shrike is a bird species that what it does is it it picks up its prey, lands on a branch, and then impales its prey while it's still living on a thorn. And then while the you know worm or you know mouse or whatever is dying, it then eats it while it's you know stuck there. It's a true villain of a bird. True villain. It's very cute. I, I've never, I'd never realized this was a real creature before. Yeah. I mean, I thought... I'll send I know you a YouTube massive... link later. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, God. I've just seen... I've just Googled Shrike. That it's... is absolutely horrifying. So this this bird just is out here impaling yeah. rodents. Yeah. It'll use barbed wire, too. On a... That's madness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say this like it's a bad thing, but I think it's actually quite a good thing. Another example of Dan Simmons finding something that's interesting and then just folding it in. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I really get the sense that he saw the Shrike bird and said, how do we villainize this? How do we make this monstrous and inhuman and non-natural? Yeah. Rather than being like, hey, blade blade machine thing. Oh, there's a bird that does something similar. I'll name it after the bird. You know, it's To me, it feels like he started with the bird mm-hmm. and then exponentialized it. 
I like this, the echo of the tree too. You know, they're on, before they get to the barge, they're on the Yggdrasil, like this giant tree starship. And now no, no, Shrike yes. has this evil version of the Yggdrasil. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I never noticed that. Yeah. And, you know, there's the revelation on this Tree of Thorns after the story's been wrapped up, if you want to get to that now. Mm. So he's told his story, he saw the Shrike, it's pretty much where the story ends. You know, then for 16 years, he didn't do any combat. He just went off the grid completely. And now he's back on this pilgrimage, presumably looking to see if he can once again meet Manita is the impression I get. That seems to be his driving motivation, the last sort of gasp of his life, essentially, the last thing he has to live for. And they ask him, they say, all right, well, you saw these bodies on uh, the Shrike. And does the, the revelation here, which is, I found it hard to get my head around, that somehow the truth of his relationship with Manita is that how is it put that she is it's with father Hoyt speaking they, they, it's not really clear and then they're having a conversation of like right so what's exactly going on here and then they're having a conversation and he says well th- just as the time teams are moving back in time Cassad is asked by Bron Lamia the detective so you met this Manita or whatever her real name is in her past but your future in the meeting that's still to come so he's almost meeting her from the future and she's coming back he's in her past and they're sort of meeting across time yeah essentially and then so the idea is that he's going now to hyperion to to the shrike temple hoping to sort of meet her in his future right to actually meet her in in reality and then the revelation there is well all right so you've essentially seen the future in a way when you went and did this whole thing with the shrike that battle you just described if you actually described something that's not happened yet when you saw the Tree of Thorns, did you recognize any of us pilgrims on that tree? You know, yes, yes, he did. So it, it, it's a very fearsome moment of foreshadowing there. Well, we know some of these characters are going to get killed by the Shrike. Yeah. And that is sort of the, the big bombshell we're, we're left on by this story. He has somehow crossed time and that he has seen that some of them are going to perish at the hands of the Shrike. All right, guys, we will pick back up next time for The Poet's Tale. Talk to you later, John Bob. Talk to you later, Zach and John. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.